today's episode of Health Tree Podcast for AML, a podcast that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Kara Thayman. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Abzi, for their support of this Health Tree Podcast for AML episode. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention an upcoming event that we will be hosting. In two weeks, on June 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern, we will host another Health Tree Podcast for AML episode. We will be joined by Dr. Kendra Sweet, an AML expert from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. Dr. Sweet will be discussing an important clinical trial using IMGN 632, a CD123-targeted antibody drug conjugate in development. I hope you can join us for this interesting discussion. The event registration page for this show will be posted by Monday, and you can register for all of our events by visiting our website, healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash events. I'd also like to take a moment to let everyone know if they are not familiar with Healthtree University, it is a free comprehensive online curriculum for AML patients and their caregivers. It has over 150 lessons from top AML experts around the country, and the content ranges from AML basics more complex topics like AML genetics and stem cell transplant. It's a great way to educate yourself prior to appointments so you can spend clinic time discussing your specific situation rather than asking basic questions. You can find HealthTree University at healthtree.org slash AML slash university. As a reminder for, day, for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Jersic a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. And now, on to our show today. Immunotherapy has become a very important area of research in acute myeloid leukemia. I think it's really important to understand how much progress has been made in the last five years. In a previous podcast episode, Dr. James Blatchley from the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at Ohio State University described the AML landscape like a desert with no water in sight. It wasn't that there were no trials and research being done. It was just that nothing was working. Nothing could beat the standard of care. There has been quite a bit of progress since 2017 with over nine new drugs introduced targeting specific genetic mutations. However, in the area of immunotherapy, the only options that are currently available are stem cell transplant and gemtuzumab. So there is still a lot of work to be done. In today's radio show, Dr. Joseph Jersik, an AML expert from Columbia University, will discuss immunotherapy and the important role it is playing in new and developing treatments for AML. Dr. Jersik will focus on a drug in development called megrolimab that has shown promising results in AML clinical trials. Dr. Jersik will explain why megrolimab is an exciting development for AML patients, which AML patients might benefit from it, and he will also discuss two upcoming trials using megrolimab. We are so happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Josek, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and discuss immunotherapy for acute myeloid leukemia, and specifically the clinical trials involving the use of megrolimab. Before well, we get thanks, started, thanks I'd love so much to provide... For the it's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, we're so happy to have you. Before we get started, I'd love to provide an introduction for you. Dr. Joseph Jersik is Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center and Director of the Hematologic Malignancy Section of the Division of Hematology Oncology. His main focus is the treatment of acute and chronic leukemias, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and myelodysplastic syndromes. Research interests include acute myeloid leukemia, radioaminotherapy, with alpha and beta particle-emitting radioisotopes, monoclonal antibody therapy for leukemia, the development of novel small molecule inhibitors for leukemia, and the molecular monitoring of minimal residual disease. Dr. Jersik has been the principal investigator on over 40 clinical trials. He has been in practice for over 30 years 
and has a very impressive list of awards and published papers, and we are extremely honored to have him on the show today. So thank you. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. <laughs> of course. Well, you have a very impressive 42-page uh, uh, CV. <laughs> so let's jump into our discussion. So what is immunotherapy, and why is this such an important area of research for AML? Well, immunotherapy is a type of treatment that uses substances to stimulate or suppress the immune system to help the body fight cancer or other diseases as well, like infections. Right? So we know that immunotherapy is a very powerful tool because I often say that allogeneic stem cell transplant you can think of as the ultimate immunotherapy. Right? We're replacing a person's immune system with a new immune system that's, and we know that this is capable of curing people with, with AML. That transplanted immune system can recognize and destroy leukemia cells, and that's a process that's known as graft versus leukemia. So the fact that we can do an allogeneic transplant in people and cure AML really provides proof of principle that the immune system is a very powerful tool to fight AML and really does merit further study. Okay. Thank, thank you for answering that. that. That made it very clear on what immunotherapy is. Uh, can you tell us how immunotherapy is currently being used in AML and why might it be important in specific treatment-resistant mutations of AML? Right. So we know that immunotherapy has really gained a, a major place in the armamentarium for various hematologic malignancies. But as you pointed out in the introduction, really its role in AML has been rather limited to date. We know, for instance, there are CD20 monoclonal antibodies that are useful in treating lymphomas and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. We have engineered T cells, known as CAR T cells, that are useful in lymphomas and ALL. We have blinatumumab, which is a molecule that targets uh, ALL cells as well as T cells. It's known as a bispecific T cell engager that's useful in ALL. So we have all of these agents and, and other diseases, but really AML it does seem to be lagging behind a bit. Uh, as you also mentioned earlier, that the only approved antibody-based therapy for AML right now is a drug called gemtuzumab ozogamycin. So this is a drug that targets a molecule on AML cells called CD33, and it delivers a chemotherapy drug directly to the cancer cells. It's called colichiomycin. In general, most antibodies by themselves haven't been potent enough to kill large numbers of AML cells. Uh, perhaps this is because the immune system tends to be damaged uh, so severely in AML. But we know that there are other bispecific antibodies and antibody drug conjugates and also radioimmunotherapy where antibodies can be used to deliver radiation to the leukemia cells that are being studied and, and show promise. So, I think these therapies are important since they represent therapeutic options for patients regardless of their genetic mutations. So as, as you know, there are multiple drugs now that are approved for people with a specific gene signature, FLT3 mutations, IDH1, IDH2 mutations, but the fact of the matter is the majority of patients with AML don't have these specific mutations, and even when they do, these drugs don't always work. So we need new therapies that can, can uh, kill the disease across the entire, uh, entire spectrum of chromosomal and genetic mutations. Okay, great. Well, you mentioned this uh, briefly when you were just speaking, but do you, do you feel the use of immunotherapy has lagged behind in AML? And do you feel that we've made progress in catching up compared to other cancers? Well, I think progress is certainly on the horizon. As I mentioned, one of the problems with most monoclonal antibodies is that they're just not potent enough to kill large volumes of leukemia. So the idea has been, one idea at least, has been to take these antibodies and arm them with something to deliver uh, to the cancer cells. And this is the notion of, a, of an antibody drug conjugate uh, 
And in your introduction, you'd mentioned you'll have a show dedicated to some promising agents in this particular field. Another is to take an antibody and label it with a radioactive element, delivering that directly to the cancer cell. So these are promising. There's also bispecific molecules that are under development. Many times when we think of immunotherapy, you see advertisements on television for these drugs all the time that target certain checkpoint inhibitors like PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4. So these drugs have been very successful in certain solid tumors like lung cancer and kidney cancer and melanoma, but they really haven't panned out so well in AML. One reason might be that uh, AML has relatively low numbers of genetic mutations uh, compared to these solid tumors. And when you have a large number of these gene mutations, you can create so-called neoantigens that can be recognized by T cells, and that is simply probably just not happening uh, in, in AML. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Um, well, why don't we start from just simple, why don't you tell us what megrolimab is? Sure. So I can kind of break this down for you. So megrolimab is a monoclonal antibody that targets a molecule on the surface of a cell called CD47. Okay. So an antibody a monoclonal antibody in particular is a type of protein that's made in the lab that can bind to certain targets in the body, such as the antigens that sit on the surface of cancer cells. So there are many different types of monoclonal antibodies. Each antibody is made so that it binds to only one antigen on the surface of a cell. And monoclonal antibodies can be designed to function in different ways. So a particular drug may actually function by more than one means. Uh, antibodies can trigger the destruction of a cell by basically poking a hole in the cell membrane. Sometimes they can block uh, cell growth, they can inhibit uh, the immune system, they can sometimes directly bind to a cancer cell causing a series of events that leads to uh, the self-destruction of that cancer cell. So we have all of these, all these methods that an, a native antibody can, uh, can work by. But we also can use antibodies to deliver radiation or chemotherapy, other toxins to cells. We can combine two antibodies, uh, one that attaches to the cancer cell and one that attaches to a specific immune cell to promote the immune system to attack the cancer cell. So those are called bispecific antibodies. So we have all of these different ways that we can use an antibody. So megrolimab binds to an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And so Immune checkpoints are actually part of the normal immune system. Their role is to prevent an immune response from being so strong that it destroys healthy cells in the body. So immune checkpoints can engage where proteins on the surface of immune cells recognize and bind to partner proteins on other cells, uh, like tumor cells. These proteins are called immune checkpoint proteins. When the checkpoint and its partner protein has bound, it can send an off signal to immune cells. So that prevents the immune system from destroying the cancer. Immunotherapy with drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors work by blocking the checkpoint proteins from binding to their partner, and that prevents the off signal from being sent. So then immune cells are able to kill the cancer cell. And again, drugs like PD-1, PD-L1, and anti-CTLA-4 antibodies can prevent destruction of cells uh, using an arm of the immune system known as T cells. Um, as mentioned earlier, there's really been limited success using those checkpoint inhibitors. So CD-47 actually represents a novel uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor, and in this case, um, it functions as a macrophage immune checkpoint. Uh, so macrophages are part of the immune system and it's their normal function to basically eat other cells. This is a process that's called phagocytosis. So CD47 sends a do not eat me signal to these macrophages, okay, and 
says, leave me alone, basically. Okay. Um, and that is how certain cancer cells can evade uh, the uh, immune surveillance by, by macrophages. So when we inhibit uh, CD47, basically what happens is you, you stop CD7 from binding to its partner protein, which is seen on the macrophage, called uh, SERP-alpha. Right? So by binding to CD47, megrolimab uh, prevents the interaction with this molecule and then allows the cells to be destroyed by macrophages. Okay. Um, just so I can make sure I'm clear on this, um, megrolimab, it, it's a monoclonal antibody and it's also an immune checkpoint inhibitor? That, that's correct. So it's, we okay. use the antibody to block CD47, which prevents uh, CD47 from binding to its partner uh, sending to, to send this do not eat me signal. Okay. And you and when you refer to tumor cells interchangeable with cancer cells, correct? Correct, correct. Okay. Okay, yeah, cuz I was I was curious to know about this don't eat me signal and and how it how it interferes exactly um uh, with that signal. So can you just walk me through that again, just as, in a simple way as possible? Yeah. Because the signal is being overexpressed on yeah, the so cells. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's important to note that while CD47 is seen on the cancer cell, it's also seen on normal cells in the body, including, including healthy uh, stem cells in the bone marrow. Right, and so this widespread expression of CD47 on normal cells could actually cause a concern for toxicity uh, when, you're, uh, when, when you're basically allowing macrophages to recognize the cell by blocking uh, the signal from CD47 with megrolimab. But we know that targeting with megrolimab, uh, CD47 with megrolimab, for most cells is not enough to cause the immune system to destroy the cells. So there are also other signals that cells give, basically what are called prophagocytic signals or eat me signals, cells, other signals that allow the cell to be recognized and destroyed. And so cancer cells express both CD47, the don't eat me signal, as well as other eat me signals. Okay, so while the normal cells lack CD47, or, or, or do express CD47, sorry, but can lack the eat me signals. So by using megrolimab to block this interaction um, the, the, of the do not eat me signal, it exposes the eat me signal on the cancer cells and allows them to be killed or eaten up basically by the macrophages in that process that I referred to as phagocytosis. Okay. In contrast, right, when we blockade CD47 on normal cells, and there's no eat me signal, the cells are actually are fine. So that's essentially how, how, how CD47 functions in the immune system. It sends an eat me signal, uh, or, I'm sorry, a do not eat me signal uh, to, to the macrophage by blocking it. You're, you're then stimulating the immune system to kill uh, the cancer cell. Okay. Thank that makes you sense. for walking us through that. Yes, that makes sense. Thank you. Good. Okay. Um, can you walk us through some of the trials that have been done so far using Megrolimab and share what has been learned so far from these trials? Yeah. So I think there's some exciting results that we've seen already. So Megrolimab in combination with azacitidine, again, another commonly used drug for myelodysplastic syndromes and AML, has shown some promising activity. Um, initially in the development um, of, of this drug, we treated and, and uh, they uh, received megrolimab at that point as a single agent. Now, the drug only produced a response in one of these 10 patients uh, who had relapsed AML. But again, it showed that the megrolimab could be given safely to patients uh, with acceptable side effects, and in fact, it did have some activity. 
So the really exciting part happened when, in fact, megrolimab was combined with azacitidine. And so far to date, there have been 95 patients with high-risk MDS who've been treated with the combination of megrolimab and azacitidine. And 75% of these patients responded to treatment. That's significantly higher than you would expect with azacitidine alone, which is the current standard of care for these patients. And based on that data, there's now a randomized phase three trial for higher risk MDS patients uh, who are, are receiving either azacitidine with placebo or azacitidine with megrolimab. And that study is currently underway and we're participating in that trial here at Columbia. So also as part of this initial study though, there were patients with AML that were studied. And, and there were 29 uh, patients where we have data available. And it was, it was sort of a very high-risk group. Two-thirds of these patients had poor-risk chromosome abnormalities. Two-thirds had prior myelodysplastic syndrome. And almost half of these patients had a P53 mutation. So this is a gene that we're going to talk about, uh, probably come back to in a little bit, but it's an important tumor suppressor gene. So it can, and, and when this gene is mutated, it confers resistance to traditional chemotherapy. So among the AML patients, uh, we had responses in about two-thirds of these patients, and 40% had a complete remission with normalization of their blood counts and elimination of the marrow blasts. And among those 29 patients, 12 of them had this poor-risk TP53 mutation. And in that group, 75% of the patients responded and 42 achieved complete remission. And that's considerably higher than you might expect to see with either intensive induction chemotherapy, um, like the seven and three chemotherapy that probably many of you have heard of, uh, or other treatments, uh, standard of care treatments like azacitidine and venetoclax. So those are the, so those are the trials that have been, uh, have been completed so far that we've participated in at Columbia. Um, okay. And, and the, the one trial, was it, the one trial you mentioned at Columbia, was it uh, using megrolimab uh, by itself, the first so one? So there, there was a safety run-in portion uh, in this trial where we where it treated 10 patients. Uh, and again, mm -hmm. we just wanted to prove that the drug was, was mainly safe to give. And among those 10 patients with relapsed or refractory AML or MDS, only one responded. Um, so we know by itself, okay. probably megrolimab is, is not going to be so useful, and that's why it's been really developed in, in, in combinations, primarily with azacitidine, but also other, other possible combinations, too. Okay. And is there a reason why or an idea as to why it might not be so effective on its own, do you think? Yeah, so I, I think um, the the issue with with megrolimab um, is that uh, you know um, one of one of the things that can happen is that in order for the drug really to work well, you also need these eat me signals on the cell. Okay, that I I, I talked about earlier, and one of the potential advantages of of azacitidine is that it actually induces the expression of these eat me signals on the cancer cell. So in particular, there's one called calreticulin that's increased up to 10 times um, uh, with, with treatment with azacitidine. And so that's why I think the, the combination of megrolimab and azacitidine is particularly interesting to study uh, for AML because you're not only blocking the don't eat me signal, but you're actually then increasing the number of these eat me signals uh, on the cancer cell. And again, there are other ways that you can potentially enhance the activity of megrolimab. Right? You could use it in conjunction with another monoclonal antibody that targets a tumor-associated antigen on the cell. This has actually been done in lymphoma already. There are studies looking at megrolimab with rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 antibody. Um, CD20 is seen very commonly on lymphoma cells. So that trial actually yielded some very, very interesting results. You could also uh, 
form a bispecific antibody, one that targets a, a, an antigen on a tumor cell and one that targets uh, CD47. Would be another interesting approach to use to try to overcome the uh, so, so sort of the the resistance of, of cells, and there are even growth factors uh, that we can use, like that that increase the number of macrophages. There's one called GMCSF, uh, so you can expand the numbers of macrophages, and then potentially enhance the activity of megrolimab. But I do think that as a single agent, uh, it's uh, it's not going to be uh, completely effective. Okay, interesting. Okay, um, I did read that the FDA had put a partial clinical hold on megrolimab studies in January 2022, but uh, the hold was lifted in April 22, and the trials are resuming. Can you talk briefly about why there was a pause? Yeah, so the the FDA did place this partial clinical hold, and it was primarily related to issues in the enhanced study, which is being conducted in MDS patients, uh, where uh, the combination of azacitidine and megrolimab uh, is being compared to azacitidine and placebo. Uh, so this imbalance in side effects in these two arms was largely due to anemia that was seen after the first few doses of megrolimab. So we know that anemia is an expected side effect of, of this drug. And that's because younger red blood cells express CD47. So as the red blood cells age, they lose CD47 and they gain eat-me signals. And this is how the body actually rids itself of, of old red blood cells. So this is actually a natural process and, and, and part of the way the immune system in, 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 in the body works. Right, so we know, though, that these anti-CD47 antibodies, like megrolimab, can enhance the clearance of these red blood cells, causing anemia. And so this poses a challenge right, in patients with MDS and AML because most people are starting already with, with some degree of anemia that's related to their disease. So what's been found is that you can, you can kind of mitigate this, this uh, anemia uh, by using small doses, low priming doses of megrolimab initially, and then increase the dose uh, and, uh, and follow the treatment with these higher maintenance doses. And so that's always been part of the protocol, and that's, that's actually how the drug has been developed. But since lifting the clinical hold, there have been additional safety measures put in place. Um, so patients now uh, beginning treatment must have a hemoglobin level of nine or greater within 24 hours of starting the therapy. And we can give transfusions to, uh, to meet this criteria. And in fact, we typically will transfuse the patient to that level before their first dose. Also, careful monitoring after those first two doses, which is really where we see the side effect happen most commonly is necessary. So within three to six hours of receiving uh, those first doses of megrolimab, you've got to check the uh, CBC again, looking for this rapid clearance of red blood cells, and we've got to be ready to, uh, to give additional transfusions before uh, serious consequences can take place. So the other, the other imbalance, I guess, in the two arms was related to infusion reactions uh, with this antibody. And this is something that's seen with pretty much every monoclonal antibody that's out there. You can get fevers, chills, back pain, nausea, sometimes low blood pressure or shortness of breath. Uh, and typically, we pre-medicate patients with Tylenol and an antihistamine like Benadryl, uh, and we can sometimes even give a corticosteroid like dexamethasone or methylprednisolone um, uh, to mitigate this. And so those were the reasons for the imbalance in the arms, and I think the reasons are, are clearly understood, and there are now plans in place to make the, make the treatment even, even safer for patients. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's important to note here that clinical trials are so rigorously monitored, and an example is this, where if there was any question about the safety or efficacy, the trials were immediately held so that additional research could be done to ensure that patients were safe before continuing on. And often I think there's a lot of misinformation out there around clinical trials. Do you, do you find that 
there's common misconceptions or do you speak to your patients about common misconceptions around uh, clinical trials? Well, you know, absolutely. I, I do think that, again, entering a, a clinical trial, um, obviously it is a new drug and sometimes new, new side effects can be uncovered. Here, I think it's simply a matter of very close monitoring. And, and the, the one thing that I will say about participating in a clinical trial is that the, um, the scrutiny that's done and, and, the, and the care that with which we, we, uh, we take in monitoring people after this, looking for, looking for side effects, is potentially an advantage, right? If we're giving sort of a tried and true treatment, uh, you know, you may not be watched as carefully. So, so I think that's actually potentially an advantage of participating in, in a clinical trial uh, is the careful scrutiny that goes on uh, during the conduct of a, of a study like this. Uh, and again, you know, there were safety measures in place initially because the anemia that was seen is, an ex is a known expected side effect. But as we got further into the study and saw how people were reacting, we even put additional uh, new measures in place to, to make it even safer. And I think this is important going forward. Um, you know, there, similar things have happened with other drugs in, in development. I mean, venetoclax is a great example. Uh, so in addition to being sort of a, a really important drug in the treatment of, of AML, it was initially developed to treat chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And it almost worked too well in those patients. Uh, there was massive destruction of, of, of CLL cells uh, after these doses, so much so that people would have what is known as tumor lysis syndrome and resulting in kidney failure. And so people would say, oh my God, this drug is so dangerous, it'll, it'll, never, it'll never go anywhere, let's just stop now. But thankfully, that's not what happened, right? Instead, new processes were put in place making the treatment safer. Uh, and of course, now it's a mainstay for treatment in patients with CLL and an incredibly important drug uh, in treating AML. So that's just another example of something that happened uh, in, in, the, uh, in the course of development of another really important drug in AML. That's good to know. Thank you for giving us that background. Yeah. Okay, um, can you tell us about the two current trials that you were working on with Magrolamab? Yeah, so at Columbia, we, we currently have, uh, have a study open uh, the, that initial phase one study that I described, it's nearing completion. Currently, there's only one group of patients that we're treating on this study, and those are patients with lower-risk myelodysplastic syndrome. Uh, they're getting a shortened course of azacitidine and megrolimab. And then we're taking part in the large international phase three study that I already mentioned, the enhanced study uh, for higher-risk uh, MDS, and in that study, patients are going to get megrolimab and azacitidine versus azacitidine alone, or azacitidine with placebo, to be, be more precise. So that study is ongoing. And we're looking forward, actually, to opening several other studies uh, with megrolimab here at Columbia. The first is one that will look at various combinations, uh, various combination therapies with megrolimab. So we're going to be looking at megrolimab in combination with azacitidine and venetoclax uh, in untreated AML uh, for patients who are not eligible to receive intensive therapy. And as probably many of you know in the audience, azacitidine and venetoclax has really become a standard of care for, for patients. And so we think that because of the non-overlapping toxicity of azacitidine and megrolimab, that this will be a very useful combination. And in fact, the MD Anderson Cancer Center has already uh, begun looking at this, this combination uh, of the three, three agents together, azacitidine, venetoclax, and megrolimab in newly diagnosed patients, and they have a very impressive 85% response rate. So I'm, I'm very excited about that trial. Uh, but other combinations that we're going to be looking at are megrolimab with uh, salvaged chemotherapy, so-called MEK chemotherapy, which is uh, mitoxantrone, etoposide, and cytarabine. That's one of the standard regimens that's used um, for patients with relapsed and refractory AML. And then uh, also for patients who have received intensive therapy but still have residual disease afterwards, minimal residual disease after, uh, we're going to be looking at the role of 
uh, megrolimab combined with oral azacitidine as a kind of maintenance therapy for these patients. So, so I think that's, that's going to be a very important study that looks at um, novel combinations uh, with a standard of care adding megrolimab to them to see if, if there'll be any, any signs of improvement. Um, another study that will be opening shortly uh, hopefully within the next within the next few months uh, is a is a study dedicated to patients with this p53 mutation that I spoke about earlier and so remember the TP53 gene um, is a tumor suppressor gene and when it's mutated right it loses its function and so these patients tend to not respond as well to traditional chemotherapies um, even with azacitidine and venetoclax in, in TP53 muted pa mutated patients the response rates are really only around 40 to 50 percent and uh, the duration of responses are around six months so we really that's a population that we need to do better in and so this study is going to randomize patients to uh, azacitidine with megrolimab versus uh, basically the treating physician's choice. You could either get uh, standard induction therapy with 7 and 3 style chemotherapy or azacitidine and venetoclax. So I think that will be a really important trial to test uh, the early signals that we've seen uh, in the clinical studies looking at the activity of megrolimab in TP53 mutated patients. It also, uh, and, and another study that's on the horizon is the so-called ENHANCE-3 study that's going to look at uh, patients randomized to azacitidine venetoclax um, alone or uh, azacitidine, venetoclax, and megrolimab. And I think that will be an important study to really establish that the three-agent combination uh, could be better uh, than the two agents uh, in, this, uh, in this larger randomized uh, trial, which will give us definitive proof. Okay. So you mentioned the TP53 mutation group of patients. Is there another group of patients that has shown to sort of benefit from the use of megrolimab, like in general? Well, the, the one aspect of this drug that, that I actually touched on a little bit earlier, I guess I, and I'll amplify this now, is the fact that it is really agnostic to all the other mutations. So it can work in patients who have P53, P53 mutations, FLT3 mutations, IDH mutations, DNMT3A mutations, you name it. There, you know, there's, there's a long list of genes uh, that can be mutated in AML and myelodysplastic syndrome. And it doesn't, it's not preferential to any of these. And so I think that's important, again, because the, it's really the minority of patients uh, with AML that can benefit from these targeted agents. Uh, and so we need uh, drugs that can, can, you know, have activity across the entire uh, spectrum of mutations that are seen in these diseases. So it seen, what, what has been unique about the TP53 abnormality is that uh, responses do seem to be as good for those patients as, as everyone else in the initial studies with megrolimab, and that has not been the case uh, with all of the other combinations uh, that, are, that, are, that have been tried to date. And so that's why that's a particular, of particular interest. But the trials that I mentioned, in fact, are open, ex except for the dedicated P53 trial, is open to, again, the entire spectrum of, of mutations. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Can you tell us about, in regards to the TP53 mutation, about how many patients typically have it, and can you tell us what makes this mutation so difficult to treat? Yeah, it's it's actually not not a particularly common mutation. It's seen in probably about 10 to 15 percent of AML patients. Um, maybe up to about 30% in patients whose AML has evolved from a myelodysplastic syndrome. So it can often be seen in, in conjunction with poor-risk chromosome abnormalities as well. And so TP53 is one of the most important tumor suppressor genes in the body. And so it does exactly what the name implies. It suppresses the growth of tumors. So when it's mutated, it loses this function. 
And that's the reason that AML that's associated with that particular mutation tends to have a poor response to chemotherapy and overall worse outcomes. So as I mentioned before, you know, azacitidine and venetoclax, even in that combination that typically produces responses in, you know, about two-thirds of patients only works 40 to 50% of the time in TP53-mutated patients, uh, and the responses tend to be of shorter duration. There have been other drugs to try to target uh, TP53. There was one, uh, APR246, uh, um, that actually did not show uh, improvement in MDS patients with the P53 mutation when it was combined with, uh, with azacitidine. Um, so uh, so I, I think that this is really an, a major unmet need. Again, I think megrolimab can work across the spectrum, but it really does seem to have, uh, uh, have, have some interesting properties in regards to P53. And, you know, perhaps it's related to the genetic complexity of, of, P53, of TP53 mutated AML. Um, so there may be also changes in the immune microenvironment caused by that mutation that, that might explain this. It's really not well understood why, um, at this point, why the uh, agrolimab seems to, uh, seems to work particularly well in, in those patients. Uh, but it's something that's obviously being, being rigorously studied right now. I'm sorry. Hello? Sorry, Dr. Jersek. Oh, I lost sorry, you. okay. I'm back. Thank you. Okay, great. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> so um, the last thing, a couple, few more questions left for today. Um, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, if we keep getting positive results from the McGrollinab trials, how long do you think it might be until uh, it becomes FDA approved? That's, that's always a, a tough question, right? So the registration trial that they're going to put forward to the FDA to get megrolimab as uh, approved agent is that study that I mentioned in MDS patients. Uh, there are going to be over 500 patients with MDS in the enhanced study, again, looking at azacitidine megrolimab versus azacitidine and placebo. Um, and so the endpoints there will be the remission rate and the overall survival. So the study has to, it's still accruing patients and then has to be completed and we need the readout from, from this trial. I will say though that, so I think we're still several years away from, from this uh, definitive answer, but you know, once the drug is approved, then you know, it's sort of the, the, the pace of investigation will, which is still pretty, pretty rapid, will even accelerate further because then you can use the drug with other novel combinations and find, find newer and perhaps better ways to use the drug than, than we already know about. So I think we're still a few years away from the drug being approved, but, um, but the definitive trial, a randomized trial that will lead to its approval is already in progress. Okay. And other than Megrolimab, are there any other immunotherapy drugs in trials now that you feel could be promising and have the potential to become FDA approved soon or in the next few years? Yeah, so I, I do think that there are other immunotherapeutic approaches that, uh, that uh, you know, could lead to FDA-approved drugs. Uh, so one particularly promising one is a drug called Iomab, uh, this is a drug that's composed of a, an antibody that targets CD45, which is seen on all white blood cells, and it's labeled with a radioactive element called iodine-131. So this, this drug is being used to deliver radiation selectively to the bone marrow and other leukemic sites of involvement before an allogeneic stem cell transplantation in patients with relapsed or refractory AML. Historically, the standard of care has been to try to give patients with relapsed or refractory AML some kind of chemotherapy to get the disease under control and then go to an allogeneic stem cell transplant, which is potentially curative. So this approach tries to intensify the treatment given before the transplant, what's known as the conditioning regimen, with this radioimmunotherapy drug. Um, 
and then follow that with, uh, with, with the transplant. And so that is currently being studied in a, in a randomized trial, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have a readout on that uh, in a relative, relatively short period of time. But this sort of therapy could represent a potentially curative uh, therapy for patients with, uh, with relapsed disease without having to uh, undergo additional salvage therapy. There are other radioimmunotherapy drugs being, uh, uh, being developed as well, one with actinium-225, uh, so-called Actimab, um, uh, that, uh, that has shown some promising activity in, in earlier studies. And the group in Seattle is looking at another uh, isotope called astatine-211, uh, giving that before stem cell transplants as well. So I also think that there are some some promising drug antibody conjugates uh, that are out there. And again, you're going to have a show dedicated to, to one of those um, very soon. Uh, there are also bispecific antibodies that are in development. Uh, I think the, the one that's probably furthest along there is a drug called flotituzumab, right? And that one targets CD123 that's seen on AML cells and CD3 that's seen on T cells. Again, activating these T cells uh, to, uh, to kill cells with the CD123 target on them. Uh, so, so I do think that there are some, certainly some other very promising drugs that are, are relatively uh, far along in development. Okay. Uh, you mentioned radioimmunotherapy. Can you just give a brief description of what radioimmunotherapy is? Yeah. So basically the idea here is that you have a targeting vehicle and, and in many cases it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to the surface of a cancer cell, in this case a leukemia cell, and attached to the antibody is uh, a radioactive isotope, uh, a, a, um, a, basically a substance that emits, uh, emits, a, emits radiation. So you can think of that treatment as kind of an injectable form of radiation that's going to seek out the leukemic cell and deliver the radiation directly to that cell. And so there are mainly two types of radiation that have, uh, ty types of isotopes uh, that have been looked at. One are the beta emitters. These are sort of longer, longer range particles like iodine-131 that are particularly useful uh, in, in the setting of a, of a transplant where you want to basically kill the, kill the entire bone marrow to replace it with, uh, with a new one. Uh, and then there are alpha particles, and I mentioned an isotope actinium-225 and also astatine-211. Uh, and these isotopes emit alpha particles which travel a much shorter distance. So if you're interested in killing specific leukemia cells or small clusters of leukemia cells, these short-ranged, high-energy alpha particles may be more efficient. And so um, these, are, these are two general approaches uh, that, that are being, uh, being actively investigated in the treatment of uh, AML. Okay. And last question I have for you today is, uh, where do you see the future of immunotherapy for AML headed over the next five to 10 years? That's kind of a bigger picture question. Yeah, so we've we've talked about some of these some of the drugs that are fairly far along in development, but I do think that the next step will be after after these novel agents are approved is how do we how can we use them best? So perhaps the five year goal is really to to develop novel combinations in 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 specific clinical settings and and find the best ways to use these new drugs that have been uh, that are being added to our our arsenal uh, to to fight AML. But there are also other approaches that I think that really need to be developed, and that's maybe more like the 10-year plan. So we know that engineered cellular therapy, so-called CAR T cells, right, have been extremely, extremely useful in treating AOL as well as lymphoma. But to date, CAR T cell therapy has been more challenging in AML. And this is primarily because the expression of the targets that are used for these cells uh, can be seen on normal early myeloid cells, cells that give rise to you know, normal blood cells. And so CAR T cells can result in significant suppression of normal blood counts. Um, and so there are methods that are being studied to uh, overcome this damage to normal cells uh, for, uh, for the CAR T cell therapy of, of AML. Uh, there are also other cells that 
could be useful. Uh, immune cells such as natural killer cells that, that could be useful in treating AML. So I think cellular therapy is going to be sort of the next, uh, next uh, big thing on the horizon for, for AML over the next five to 10 years. Okay, thank you for summing that up for us. So I'd like to open it up now for caller questions. If you have questions about anything Dr. Jersik discussed today, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press one on your keypad. So I'll just give it a minute here, see if I get any caller questions. Okay, it looks like we have a question from the caller ends with 1034. I will unmute you and you can ask your question. Go ahead, caller. Hi, Dr. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today to explain all this. Um, when it comes to finding appropriate targets, I know you've talked about, um, you know, I can't even say that right. Targeting CD47. Um, what other targets are people studying that look promising in AML? So I think some of the some of the uh, major targets have been CD33. Uh, this is a an antigen that sits on the surface of of the majority of AML cells. Um, it happens to be the target for for a drug called Actimab, which is the antibody uh, labeled with, um, with, act, uh, with actinium-225. It's also the target uh, that, is, uh, that is used for gemtuzumab ozogamycin, an already licensed drug uh, in AML. So that has proven to be a, a useful target. One of the drawbacks from it is that, again, CD33 is seen on some normal myeloid progenitor cells, so this can result in suppression of normal blood counts, and many times the time to re recover from these agents can be, can be prolonged. And that's one of the drawbacks in general, is that there's no such thing as a, quote, truly tumor-specific target in AML, um, as far as these proteins that sit on the surface of the cells. Right, they're all expressed to some degree or another on normal cells in the body. So one of the things that can be used to an advantage is that there's overexpression of, of these targets on leukemia cells compared to the normal cells in the body. But it's not a completely clean, uh, uh, clean target. And so there's still some collateral damage that occurs. So CD33 is one. Uh, I mentioned uh, IMAB, which targets CD45. So this is not a specific leukemia target. It's, seen, again, seen on leukemia cells, but it's also seen on every white blood cell. Now, in the setting that IMAB is being used for in, in, tra in transplant, you actually want to target all of, the, all of the cells because you want to clear out the bone marrow, and you want to target immune cells to suppress the immune system so that you can then accept the transplanted cells and, and, uh, and uh, they can grow and not be rejected. So it's a good target for that particular use, uh, but not, not to kill leukemia cells as, uh, alone because there will be lots of collateral damage. Um, another really promising target is CD123. Uh, so this is expressed on, on AML cells as well as the leukemic stem cell, the cell that gives rise to all of these, all of the leukemia cells. So that's a potential advantage of that particular uh, target. And again, it's 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 being used in in the bispecific antibody setting. It's being used uh, as a target for uh, for drug antibody conjugates. Uh, and so I think that one is also very useful. So can I ask a follow-up question? So um, sure. you talked about bispecifics being developed in AML, which is fabulous. Um, when you think about this um, potential off-target, you know, that you don't want, yeah. um, would the tri-specifics help with that? Because, like, let's say you're saying, okay, I want this molecule to go find CD33 and one of the other, you know, CD45 that you just mentioned or something, and just find those two plus, you know, your 
Well, the so, immune so third function targets the immune cell. And I think yeah. uh, it, it may actually in, enhance specificity. Um, again, there's absolutely no clinical trials yet to date, uh, but it's it's certainly an idea that needs to be explored. Okay, well, thank you so much for answering my questions. Sure. Okay, we have another question here coming in, and that looks like it is from caller 7386. So caller 7386, I'll unmute you. Okay. Go ahead, caller. Hi, can you hear me? Um, yeah. I have a question for you on maybe uh, one of the studies that you'd possibly recommend. Um, so my husband just turned 40. He was diagnosed with AML in December, and he has TP53 and also deletion of 5Q and 7Q. Um, he was able to get into remission prior to um, stem cell transplant in March, but day 38, he already relapsed again and did a round of decidabine and venetoclax. He's actually in the hospital now with sepsis, but probable refractory disease. Um, we just actually are waiting on results today. So I was just curious um, if you have any suggestions as far as what study to maybe pursue with the magrolimab or what you would have to say about it. Yeah, so at, at this point, you know, I, I would, the, the relapse actually happened fairly quickly after transplant, but mm -hmm. the, the most of the studies that I that are currently ongoing are actually in the earlier settings. However, there there will be the actually I, I may be open at some centers already looking at magrolimab in combination with salvage chemotherapy. Um, I would actually have to check the details of the study because, again, giving a really intensive chemotherapy this quickly after transplant can can be tough. One yeah. thing that I would suggest uh, talking about is, is again further further manipulations of the new immune system, and so even if even if the decitabine venetoclax hasn't completely eliminated the disease, it may bring it under enough control that you can think about either giving donor donor lymphocytes, uh, basically mm -hmm. cells collected from the donor that can cause a graft versus leukemia effect. Um, and, and that may be one thing that would be useful in somebody uh, in, with your husband's situation where the relapse has occurred relatively quickly after the transplant. Okay. So you think all these studies that you have been discussing with the magrolimab um, with, combined with like venetoclax and azacitidine, those aren't something that he would qualify for. He would need something. I do recall them saying something about salvage therapy with magrolimab, but... So again, early on, we we actually did uh, did give it to some people with relapse disease as a single agent, and again, it did not work so well. The yeah. group at MD Anderson has has uh, a, an ongoing trial, um, and they presented preliminary data uh, at this at the past uh, ASH meeting, the American Society of Hematology, back in December, twenty twenty one, and what what they showed was that, in fact, the triplet combination does have activity for patients um, with, with relapse disease, but not so much in patients who have received prior uh, azacitidine and, and venetoclax. Um, okay. So those that never received it, it actually did have some promising effects. Um, so we, we've, we've learned that already from some preliminary data out there. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank you. It's a very difficult. Okay, well, oh, I'm so sorry, Dr. Jersik. I was just saying it's a very tough problem that, that he's, he's dealing with. Yes. Okay, that's all the time we have for caller questions. Dr. Jersik, thank you so much for joining us today. We're just so grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share your incredible expertise with us. We'd love to have you on the show again in the future to share more updates on immunotherapy and the Magrolimab trials. We wish you all the best in your clinical practice and your research endeavors. Well, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure to be with you today. Yes, thank you again. Okay. Have
Have a good day, everybody. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Podcast for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research.